<clears throat> uh, today is March 13th, 2022, and for Teisho today, <clears throat> my topic, um, I guess tentatively, my topic is uh, the ups and downs of practice. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, whole question of our enthusiasm for practice, uh, our <clears throat> ability to uh, to open, to be aware, to be responsive, uh, to feel that we're on the right path, uh, to have confidence in our ability to do this work, to be free from grasping, from <clears throat> what uh, uh, Tibetan teacher Trungpa called spiritual materialism, trying to get something, be uh, free of self-criticism, ideas about how we're better than others or worse than others, <clears throat> feeling of not being good enough, all those <laughs> annoying problems that come up with a sustained Zen practice. Everybody has to, to face up to them. <clears throat> For most people, uh, there is a great deal of enthusiasm uh, when we begin because uh, at some level or another we realize we've found something that's really special, that's, that's really different, and that has the potential to change our lives. <clears throat> we have what, uh, what's called beginner's mind, and uh, most people know about uh, the book by Suzuki, Shunru Suzuki, the uh, uh, teacher, sort of founding teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center, <clears throat> the book that was written based on his talks. It's one of the early books that introduced people to Zen. In fact, when I looked at Beginner's Mind on Wikipedia, <clears throat> it quoted Roshi <laughs> as saying that it was one of the two books, the other one, of course, is The Three Pillars of Zen, that... Uh, brought so many people into Zen practice. And I've talked to a lot of people who are really fond of this book. I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It meant a lot to me when I, when I first read it. So I'm just going to read a little bit of what he says in the beginning of the book. People say that practicing Zen is difficult, but there is a misunderstanding as to why. It is not difficult because it is hard to sit in the cross-legged position or to attain enlightenment. It is difficult because it is hard to keep our mind pure and our practice pure in its fundamental sense. He goes on, I am interested in helping you keep your practice from becoming impure. <clears throat> in Japan, we have the phrase shoshin, shoshin, which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. 
Suppose you recite the Prajna Paramita Sutra only once. That's <laughs> what we just did. It might be a very good recitation, but what would happen to you if you recited it twice, three times, four times, or more? You might easily lose your original attitude towards it. The same thing will happen in your other Zen practices. For a while, you will keep your beginner's mind, but if you continue to practice one, two, three years or more, <clears throat> although you may improve some, you are liable, liable to lose the limitless meaning of original mind. <clears throat> For Zen students, the most important thing is not to be dualistic. Our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. <clears throat> if you discriminate too much, you limit yourself. If you are too demanding or too greedy, your mind is not rich and self-sufficient. In the beginner's mind, there is no thought, I have attained something. All self-centered thoughts limit our vast mind. When we have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, we are true beginners. Seems so clear the minute we're attaining something, the minute we're grasping at something, how can the mind be open? How can we be with things as they are? I think in Suzuki's terminology was things as it is. <laughs> so as I say, we start out and, and it, it happens with almost everything. You know, anything you pick up, there's usually that sort of carefree, enthusiasm in the beginning. Everything is new. We're open to it. We don't know what it is. Because we don't know what it is, we're open to it. And then later on, we think we do know what it is because we've been through it. And then it becomes a little more dry, a little less rich. It's so common for people to get stuck. One of the reasons I, I wanted to give this talk is just seeing people in Doksan so many times who feel so diffident about the fact that they've been practicing for a decade or two or three even, maybe more, and uh, they, haven't, they haven't gotten through Mu or they haven't had Kensho or they haven't accomplished this or that. It's, it's so poignant that the focus is there and not in this amazing world that we're right in the middle of. That we're fixed on achievement and not on just opening up, seeing what's there, 
being willing to be with things as they are. Of course, we can't just snap out of it. Not sure if I'm going to fix anybody with this talk, but at least it gives us something, some direction, some something to to make different, to change, to start to change. We're really working against our normal habits, the habits that fill our our lives from beginning to end. It's not just a problem of Zen practice. It's a problem of everything. It's a problem of our life. It's a natural habit. We've been built to make things routine. Once, uh, Once people know what to expect, then they can take their attention off of that and devote it to whatever else seems important. I think <clears throat> we're, we're programmed that way uh, because we're programmed to succeed. Nature really doesn't care whether we're uh, happy or uh, content. just wants us to have some children and pass our genes along. And so anybody who who pays attention to what their life is like, hopefully that's all of us here, has noticed the tendency to go on automatic pilot. I think I mentioned once I have a friend who was driving down to Florida and... uh, he woke up in Tennessee. He'd just been driving for hours, and all of a sudden he realized he was in Tennessee. He'd had no idea how he'd gotten there. Just <laughs> automatic pilot. Works real well. There's a different networks in the brain, uh, neurologists or scientists of... <clears throat> talked about the default mode network and the task positive network. There are two patterns of, of mind, two patterns of mental activity. The one is this sort of drifting, uh, no focus in particular, thoughts just come into the mind. And there's a lot of value to that because that's how we remember things or that's how we suddenly have an idea. Uh, we're not really looking. We're just sort of floating along and things pop up. And then uh, opposed to that is the task positive network where we're actually focusing on something. could be <clears throat> practice, it could be juggling, could be watching a movie, reading a book. Anything we do where we're focused, then we're no longer in that drifting mode. The, the trick <clears throat> is to develop awareness of what's going on in the mind. It's the, uh, <clears throat> that's the skill that we pick up as we practice, knowing what's going on, knowing when we're bummed out, knowing when we're drifting, knowing when we're afraid, knowing when we're angry, talked uh, recently in a Tay show about just being aware of the body, feeling those sensations that tug at us. So often 
we're, we're going along and uh, not feeling terribly great, just sort of got that uh, dissatisfied feeling. I guess the Buddha called it dukkha, suffering. Uh, we're not really with it. We're not satisfied. But we're also not paying attention to that. We're sort of pushing it off to the side, kind of struggling on. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a very satisfactory way to live. But if we're honest, we spend a lot of time in that kind of state. When we first begin to practice, we get an idea of, of what it's like. We find out how much time we're just drifting, how much time we're doing what Roshi Kaplow used to call thoughting, as opposed to directed thinking, where we're actually intentionally thinking, trying to figure something out. So I want to turn for a moment to a book uh, by Robert Wright called Why Buddhism is True. And he talks about the first time he went to a Vipassana retreat. And uh, he discovered that uh, he was really bad at meditating. (laughs) Uh, just His mind was everywhere. So uh, there was some sort of session where a number of the students, a group of eight or nine of us yogis, he says, assembled in a room near the meditation hall, and there for 45 minutes we could air any problems we were having. So when my turn came to speak, I gave voice to my frustration, and the ensuing dialogue with my teacher went something like this. So you notice that your mind keeps wandering. Yes, that's good. It's good that my mind keeps wandering? No. It's good that you notice that your mind keeps wandering, but it happens like all the time. That's even better. It means you're noticing a lot. This didn't have the uplifting effect that my teacher had perhaps intended. I felt a bit patronized. It was kind of like those times when one of my daughters back in the toddler stage would fail abjectly at something, and I'd strain to find an encouraging word. Maybe she would fall down while trying to get on a tricycle, and I'd say, you got back up, what a big girl, (laughs) neglecting to note that actually big girls don't fall down while trying to get on tricycles in the first place. But I've since come to realize that this first bit of feedback I ever got from a meditation teacher was not just strained encouragement. My teacher was right. By frequently noticing that my mind was wandering, I was breaking new ground. In my ordinary workaday life, when my mind wandered, I would follow it over hill and dale, not even aware that I was being led. Now I was following it for only short stretches before breaking free, at least briefly free, free for long enough to realize it had been leading me, a realization that would then give way to it leading me some more. point we've made before, but you can't make it enough. That's the whole the whole key is knowing what's going on. And it, it does change things. The more we catch ourselves, <clears throat> wake back up, even though we do it again and again, the easier we 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 wear a groove, you know, the a path is formed, a habit is built. Everything we do pretty much is the product of habits. 
as, we, as we've done in the past, we do today. So we do today, we'll do in the future. And changing it is, is a slow process. It's like turning a ship, a big ship. It doesn't turn on a dime. <clears throat> then besides our natural habit to make things routine and to drift, there's the habit of always trying to get something, having an agenda. There's, there's so many people that their day is a constant stream of what I need to get done. Uh, and this idea I think we have in the back of our minds that, well, once I get it all done, then I'm going to relax. Then everything is going to be smooth. Then I can enjoy my life. But first I have to do all these things. <clears throat> Naturally, this maintains our sense of separation, sense of evaluation, and sets us up for discouragement when we don't do everything that we set out to do. And that uh, sort of leads us into another uh, pernicious habit, and that's the habit of negativity. That's really a big one, uh, the sort of aw shit reflex. Something goes wrong or we feel some kind of physical or emotional pain and everything goes south. We close down. Uh, sometimes the phenomenon is referred to as pain on top of pain or people make a distinction and they call one thing pain and another thing suffering. The Buddha, in one of the sutras, uh, referred to it as the second dart. <clears throat> he says, he said, when an untaught worldling, <laughs> that's us, is touched by a painful feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feeling a bodily and a mental feeling. It is as if a man was pierced by a dart and following the first piercing, he is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. It is similar with an untaught worldling when touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, beats his breast, weeps and is distraught. He resists and resents it. Then in him who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling comes to underlie his mind. <clears throat> the way of putting it would be it comes to be the tenor of our mind. How many of us struggle with that sort of habitual negativity? Under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. <clears throat> I think what he's saying here is then we escape into whatever. Sensual uh, happiness can mean in a lot of things. Sometimes it's not so happy. Maybe we uh, escape into playing with our phone. He says, and why does he do so? An untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness we could say, of distraction. 
then an underlying tendency of, to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie his mind. Basically, this is how we move into habitual addictive behaviors, whatever they may be. He does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. In him who lacks that knowledge, an underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings comes to underlie his mind. When he experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, he feels it as one fettered by it, caught up in it. Such a one, O monks, is called an untaught worldling who is fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is fettered by suffering. This I declare. Because I have so much material, I'm not going to go on and uh, go through the Buddha's elucidation of the person who doesn't succumb to that second dart. I think it's pretty clear to us already. <laughs> I like the fact that when you when you watch it play out in your life without trying to squash it or turn away from it, <clears throat> without immediately trying to fix it, you just try to know it, that so much gets revealed. There's a, there's a saying in Buddhism, liberation is being happy to see your karmic hindrances arise. <clears throat> One teacher said it's like a compassionate alarm clock reminding us you're lost in the dream. Anytime we find ourselves squirming, uh, turning away from what's in front of us because we don't like it, because we want to grasp more, can let that wake us up. It's really our point of practice. <clears throat> we end up discovering that negative feelings are useful. And I want to read something from our friend, Anthony DeMello. He says, pleasant experiences make life delightful. Painful experiences lead to growth. Suffering points up an area in you where you have not yet grown, where you need to grow and be transformed and change. If you knew how to use that suffering, oh, how you would grow. Let's limit ourselves for the time being to psychological suffering, to all those negative emotions we have. I've told you that you could do what you could do with those emotions. The disappointment you experience when things don't turn out as you wanted them to, watch that. Look at the disappointment, that depression you experience when you are criticized. Negative feelings, every negative feeling is useful for awareness, for understanding. They give you the opportunity to feel it to watch it from the outside. <clears throat> I think what he means by watch it from the outside is not identify with it. To realize it's just a thought. It's just a feeling. <clears throat> I 
not me. It says, in the beginning, depression will still be there, but you will have cut your connection with it. Gradually, you will understand the depression. As you understand it, it will occur less frequently, will disappear, may disappear altogether, maybe. But by that time, it won't matter too much. <clears throat> Before enlightenment, I used to get depressed. After enlightenment, I continue to be depressed. <clears throat> I love that. We have this idea that we're going to do this practice and we're going to fix everything. We're going to fly off into the, the rainbow. <clears throat> Sport with the dolphins. <clears throat> but life continues. How much better to know what's going on, to know when we feel bad, to be able to open up to it. It's, it's not as bad as when you fight it. It's not as bad as you think. He says, gradually or rapidly or suddenly. And that's a good point. The, the changes that happen us, in us, they can happen in a flash. You can have some sort of amazing experience, and it can change things for you. But there's also gradual change. Walking through the mist, we gradually become wet. Slowly we change. It can be gradual, rapid, or sudden. You get to the state of wakefulness. This is the state where you drop desires. But remember what I mean by desire and cravings. I mean, quote, unless I get what I desire, I refuse to be happy. I mean cases where happiness depends on the fulfillment of desire. <clears throat> so a little point there that uh, people hear about, hear talk of getting beyond desire, and they think they'll become a, a desireless automaton, won't care what's served for lunch. The problem is when you care so much what's served for lunch that you start complaining, either internally or, <laughs> or externally. <clears throat> yeah. So how do we how do we begin to make that change? Obviously, we have our practice. It's so incredibly efficient. <clears throat> We're on the mat. We have our method, whether it's a breath practice or a koan, <clears throat> awareness practice. And every time we wander, we bring ourselves back. That makes a change. It, it, is, it is possible to bring our negativity and our grasping into our practice and sort of get stalled out. But if we keep at it, if we keep noticing, <clears throat> we're going to get through. If you keep walking in the same direction, but there are some things you can do to sort of help yourself along. And I wanted to read a, a piece from Pema Chodron. <clears throat> the title is How to Make the Most of Your Day and Your Life. 
and she says this, one of my favorite subjects of contemplation is this question. Since death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain, what is the most important thing? You know you will die, but you really don't know how long you have to wake up from the cocoon of your habitual patterns. You don't know how much time you have left to fulfill the potential of your precious human birth. Given this, what is the most important thing? <clears throat> every day of your life, every morning of your life, you could ask yourself, as I go into this day, what's the most important thing? What's the best use of this day? At my age, <clears throat> I think she's old like me, at my age, it's kind of scary when I go to bed at night and I look back at the day and it seems like it passed in the snap of a finger. That was a whole day? What did I do with it? Did I move any closer to being more compassionate, loving, and caring? To being fully awake? Is my mind more open? What did I actually do? I feel how little time there is and how important it is how we spend our time. <clears throat> She's touching on a habit that uh, some people take up, and I think it's really a fruitful one, which is just to stop and review. The end of the day, look back over it. What do we regret? What would we like to do differently? The beginning of the day, it's uh, more common, I think, for people to think, what do I want to get done? But usually that getting done is a list of all the tasks they're overwhelmed with so important to make our <clears throat> agenda, our goal, to be something more than just getting tasks done. The rest and the openness and the enjoyment that we think will come at the end of all our tasks, that has to be baked in. That has to be part of it. You can do what needs to be done without continually perseverating with continually thinking about it and worrying about it first you have to notice that that's what you're doing you have to be honest with yourself to see that you do that people don't like to see that think I've been practicing for 20 years I shouldn't be like that the reality is everybody should be exactly like what they are <clears throat> not saying you should stay like that. <laughs> we, we, we work from this moment. We work from what we've got. Regretting the past doesn't help us a bit. She says, what is the best use of each day of our lives? In one very short day, each of us could become more sane, more compassionate, more tender, more in touch with the dreamlike quality of reality. Or we could bury all these qualities more deeply and get more in touch with solid mind, retreating more into our own cocoon. Every time a habitual pattern gets strong, every time we feel caught up or on automatic pilot, we could see it as an opportunity to burn up negative karma. Rather than as a problem, we could see it as our karmic ripening. But that's hard to do. When we realize that we are hooked, that we're on automatic pilot, what do we do next? That is a central question for the practitioner. 
<clears throat> and then she gives us a little something to do. She says, one of the most effective means for working with that moment when we see the gathering storm of our habitual tendencies is the practice of pausing or creating a gap. We can stop and take three conscious breaths and the world has a chance to open up to us in that gap. We can allow space into our state of mind. Basically break the stream. You know, it's important to sit every day. Uh, so important. And it's good to work up to sitting, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. Um, it's wonderful to come in the evening to the center and sit for two hours, sit three rounds. It has an amazing effect. But I think maybe equally as, as important is how many times during the day we break the spell. We come back to this moment. <clears throat> Don't neglect that. It's so easy to do, and it's so, once you, once you get the knack of just dropping it, just dropping, you can take three conscious breaths, as she suggests, or just open. Hear the tone of the room. Feel your breath in your body. So many things we can attend to. The rain, quiet of a snowstorm, bird song, sunshine on my shoulders. creates that gap. Go into a silence, even if it's just for a moment. And she says something similar to what I just said. <clears throat> she says, before I talk about consciously pausing or creating a gap, it might be helpful to appreciate the gap that already exists in our environment. Awakened mind exists in our surroundings, in the air, in the wind, in the sea, in the land, in the animals. But how often are we actually touching in with it? Are we poking our heads out of our cocoons long enough to actually taste it, experience it, <clears throat> and let it shift something in us? Let it penetrate our conventional way of looking at things. That shifting something. I notice, and I remember talking with Roshi, and he's had this, has the same experience, when you go and talk to a group of students or uh, some group that wants to hear about Zen meditation and you sort of take them through the, the routine, same thing happens, I guess, with a, doing a workshop. At some point, you describe the process of meditating on the breath. And uh, when you're doing it, you say, you know, when you begin, breathe in. And then as you... Breathe out, count one. Breathe in, and as you breathe out, count two, and so on. Whenever I do that, whenever I breathe out and just barely voice one, everything settles. It's like this gift 
and it's it's so ironic that it's available all the time and we dip into that most of us dip into that so much less so so less frequently than we could put it that way <clears throat> so pema goes on for all of us the experience of our entanglement differs from day to day the magic and the power. Maybe that feeling can stay with you and you can go into your day with it. Whatever it is you are doing, the magic, the sacredness, the expansiveness, the stillness stays with you. When you are in touch with that larger environment, it can cut through your cocoon mentality. Pause, practice, can transform each day of your life. It creates an open doorway to the sacredness of the place in which you find yourself. The vastness, stillness, and magic of the place will dawn upon you if you let your mind relax and drop for just a few dress, breaths, drop for just a few breaths, the storyline you are working so hard to maintain. If you pause long enough, just long enough, you can reconnect with exactly where you are with the immediacy of your experience. Further on she says, let it be like popping a bubble. Let it be just a moment in time and then go on. In any moment you could just listen. In any moment you could put your full attention on the immediacy of your experience. <clears throat> the more we do this, the more we realize that life is a banquet. There's just so much, so rich. It's only our habit energy that cuts us off from that. much that I had hoped to cover that I'm not going to get to. But I did want to finish um, by talking for a while uh, about the the methods of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, It's really significant for me because uh, it was a big turning point in my practice when I was fortunate enough to come into AA. I was fortunate to have screwed up enough that that's where I ended up. There's a saying there in AA that you hear a lot, slow growth is good growth. It's really uh, could be the theme of, of this talk. There's a there's a book that's used in AA. It's called the Big Book. It's a big blue book full of basically people's <clears throat> stories about their uh, their alcoholism and their recovery. 
and uh, stuff about the various principles of AA. The book ends with uh, this phrase, uh, we will meet many of you as we trudge the road of happy destiny. Such a great phrase because the word trudge, you know, it isn't always fun and games. We have to work, have to put in the effort. We have to <clears throat> do what we value, even when we don't feel like it. But there is that happy destiny. We're going where we need to go. AA is, of course, as most people know, is a 12-step program. It's the original 12 steps. And uh, I want to talk really briefly, just a brief summary of the first three and relate them to what we're doing because they're, they're, they're very similar. So step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. <clears throat> Step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And step three is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll finesse that in a moment. So step one the, the, the genius of step one is that it humbles us, that we admit that if we do things a certain way, we are defeated. As long as, for an alcoholic, as long as we try to manage our drinking, we're going to screw up. Things are going to go south. For us, <clears throat> most of whom, for most of whom, Drinking's not the major problem. Some of us it is, I think. We're still stuck in this cycle of self-sabotage. We're addicted to our thoughts, to our negative thoughts, our evaluative thoughts. We're addicted to comparing ourselves to other people. Flavor is different with every person. But we all have the habits that we cannot control. We cannot just will them out of existence. <clears throat> But we realize that we have a method, we have a path that can help change that. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We realize that awareness can change everything. A little bit can change a little, a lot can change a lot. Then step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over. <clears throat> of course, in Buddhism, we don't have a God concept. But it basically, the way I came to understand it in AA is my understanding, God as we understand him, my understanding was not me, but my faith in something that's not little me. It's not John. The world is so much wider, so much more. Mind is so vast. You know, my personality and my habits and my idiosyncrasies are limited. What do I want to cultivate? 
In Buddhism, there is the concept of bodhicitta, the aspiration to enlightenment, the aspiration to come to full awakening for the sake of all beings. When we commit, not that we think we're going to accomplish something in any frame of time, but that we're going to go in that direction. We're going to work our lives, going to change our lives gradually so we can live what we believe. And there's a power that helps us along. There was a way to sum up step three it would be trust the process. Connect with the people we're practicing with. Join them on the trudging the road to happy destiny. <clears throat> well, now I truly have used up my time. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 